Hello and welcome to Rolling for Change, a podcast about the therapeutic nature of board gaming as well as the way that board games can be used in professional settings such as teaching, education, teaching and education are the same, such as teaching, therapy and business, a number of uh, possibilities. My name is Woody Harris. I'm a therapist here in the Atlanta, Georgia area and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Brian Peace. Hi, I'm Brian Peace. I'm a uh, teacher in Metro Atlanta area, teaching specializing in English for high schools. Right, and you can use board games in that in so many ways. Maybe not specifically sometimes, but the gamification, the concepts within gaming are really easy to apply to it. Right, and and he's going to talk to us a lot about that as we move along through this podcast. This is our second episode of Rolling for Change, so uh, please... Be patient with us, be kind to us, and um, send us your your ideas about what you would like to see this show become. What, what the, the, Just send us your input, because we want it to be a collaboration with the board gaming tabletop community. So today our theme is we're going to talk about cooperative slash collaborative games, and we're going to talk about how those we're basically going to talk about the way that those games can be therapeutically helpful, whether it's in your own gaming group or in a situation that's more of a professional nature. But we're also going to talk about some articles we read about those kind of games and just generally drivel all over the microphone in regards to cooperative board games. I will not be dribbling quite so much. I'll leave that to Woody. Yes, I, I have a, an extra padded foam microphone so that I can just slobber into it. It's just slobber. Okay. He, he has cats. It's the benefit of having something padded and protected. <laughs> yeah, let, let's say it's about the cats. Um, <laughs> but however, we're going we're gonna to start by talking about games we're really excited about. Because as I was telling Brian earlier, we are board gamers first and foremost, and we get excited about games. So I'm going to throw the ball to Brian and say, what have you been playing? What do you like right now? Well, we had a um, a wedding reception party for some friends this weekend that you were at. I was there, yes. Yeah. We played, um, oddly enough, a cooperative game, Mysterium. Yes. Had a blast with it. It's finally getting ready to uh, getting ready to come out in the American version. We've been playing the uh, Polish version for... Few months four months now, now? Yeah, about four, four or five months. months and i really cannot wait for this so in this game you have one person who is a ghost this ghost has been killed the ghost is trying to communicate with people but it can only do that through visions glimpsed in dreams so if you've ever played a game like dixit you've got a lot of cards in your hand that just have images on them and you're going to hand these cards out to the people who are going to try to guess through three stages of the game, trying to figure out what the weapon was, where it happened, and who did it, a la Clue. Yeah. Yeah. Clue meets Dixit, ultimately. Yeah, Clue meets Dixit. And it's a really bizarrely difficult game sometimes, especially if if you're with a group of people who don't know each other because you don't know what the other people are going to... Um, are going to read from your clues. For instance, the the lady who was the ghost for us was unaware 
that Woody is colorblind and she's handing him cards, assuming that he's going to pick up the cue she's saying. But the third or fourth round, Woody's like, uh, if it's about color, I'm I I can't do it, and I, you know I I can't tell. Is that purple? Is that blue? Is that green? And then she said, "Oh, I just realized there's a flaw in my plan here." So she had to work toward um, allowing the rest of us to collaborate to tell him. I think I think she's leaning toward green here. Is that green? Yes, that's green. <laughs> and we 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 did not succeed in the end, which I've I don't think I've ever played that game. I think we've I played that game. For four months now, and I've only won it once. I think I've won once out of like maybe five or six times that I've played now. And I've enjoyed every game I've played regardless. So. Yes. Yes, and it's a great little cooperative game. Um, yeah, one of the things I really like about that game is the way that the ghost can listen into the conversation of the participants who are investigating and make changes accordingly. They can't speak to us. The ghost can't speak to us, but we can speak to the ghost. And, and that, I think adds a little bit of a flair to it that makes it a little more possible to reach these conclusions. But you're right. I think the ghost does need to know a little bit about people. Yeah. And the other thing is most people, the first time they play the ghost, they assume the hardest part for them is going to be handing out these cards and getting the cards, right? The hardest part is the ghost cannot communicate with you while you're making your decision of which card you're going to choose as, as your, your guest for that round. So they have to not, make obvious facial cues or you know ex- yeah eye contact is a no-no size. basically yeah so you got you you have to pick, if you're going to be a ghost make sure you have an excellent poker face and don't be like me whenever i'm looking across the table my wife going oh really oh my god are you serious because you, you can't just roll that. your eyes the ghost just rolled their eyes What what is going on now <laughs> <laughs> all right well i i the mysterium is a fantastic game i've been in love with this game and I tried so hard to get it at Gen Con. Um, so I didn't get it at Gen Con. So I'm going to move on and talk about something I did get at Gen Con, which is Codenames. This is my new favorite word game. Codenames is a kind of a twisted take on password. You are basically looking at a grid of 15, no, 25 cards, 5 by 5 grid of cards that ha- each card has a word on it. You have in front of you a grid that sort of gives you an indication of where the cards are that you want your team to find, but there are also on that same card, there are, there are indications of where the other team wants to find their cards, and they're innocent bystanders, and there's also this one that's the assassin. So you're trying to give a one-word clue for the maximum number of words in your, in your tableau, I guess is the right way to put it, so that your team can get that get those words quicker than the other team gets their words and you're also trying to make sure that you don't get caught with this assassin thing so you like if a word let's say the word is bob for lack of a better term and my word my thing that i told my team was fishing for three and i didn't think about the fact that bob could be a fishing term then i would be kind of um I would probably have my team mess up because they might say, oh yeah, Bob is what you put in the water to catch the fish to see if the fish is getting the the worm. Let's put Bob. Nope. Uh, I'm sorry. We've been assassinated. So that's, uh, it's not easy to explain the game. This game is by Vlada Javadil. It's a a brand new game from uh, Czech Games, um, which is in cooperation with, what's the other game group? I can't think of them. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I that's can okay. probably find that out. <laughs> uh, it, anyway, it's Czech Games, the same group that does like um, Galaxy Trucker, 
that sort of thing. But Vlada Shavadal is the maker and or the creator, and he's fantastic. He's created a really great game. This is such a great tape on take on password that I I think I've played this at every game gathering I've been to since I got the game. And I just bought it on a whim. I was like, okay, the name Vlada Chavadal. You guys say you only have a limited number. I'm a Gen Con crazy who just has a little bit of extra money in his pocket. Okay, I'll buy it. That's what Gen Con likes. <laughs> Someone with extra cash who has no clear idea of why they're buying a game. And those of us who had to go to Gen Cant, who weren't able to go to Gen Con, appreciate that as well. Because <laughs> I got to play the game. Yes. You've played it a few <laughs> times now. May even play it again tonight. Okay. So we're going to move on to talking about cooperative, collaborative games. Uh, and we're going to talk about a couple of articles we found. We're going to give kind of an overview of collaborative games, what they look like, some suggestions that we have, and how we experience those games. And then finally, how we're going to put those into professional environments. So I feel like the first thing we should be talking about is what does it mean to have a cooperative game? Well, in general, a cooperative game is one where instead of competing against each other, you're all working together toward a common goal. Um, Games such as um, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, where you're all working as firemen trying to put out a fire and save individuals within the within the home or the building or whatever map you have set up Um, games like that where where everyone has to be working together to solve the game okay and i'm going to point out that I, i found an article that dealt with the idea that there is a third option so you have competitive cooperative and collaborative And whether or not we agree with this nomenclature or not, I think it's a good idea to talk about it because it makes a little bit of a difference in the way that we look at a game. So the article that I looked at was one called Collaborative Games, Lessons Learned from Board Games. And this is by Jose Zagel and Joaquin Rick. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. From Georgia State, uh, not Georgia State, Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech. Um, And it's basically an article that goes over the whole idea behind the article is so what can we learn from board games that we can put into video games because video games don't always get it right i I love this idea taking taking information from the analog world to try to create the digital world so the one thing that he talked about that really caught my attention was this difference in competitive cooperative and collaborative games and of course competitive we all know really well chess is a competitive game Monopoly is a competitive game. Um, Most of the worker placements that we talked about last time are competitive games where you're working towards a specific goal for yourself and not for the other. So you're you're basically you know grabbing limited resources for yourself and you don't care what. I mean, my goal is if I'm playing Brian in in Carcassonne, my goal is Brian's going to lose. That's my goal. Um. So that's that's the the competitive side. Cooperative is an interesting distinction between collaborative and competitive. Cooperative, this guy basically says, is neither completely opposed nor completely coincidental, meaning basically opportunities exist for players to be able to work together to achieve that win-win condition, but it doesn't really matter whether or not they work together. So it's almost like... um, 
It's it's a middle like if we look at a spectrum, competitive, collaborative. If for this guy, the the cooperative games are in the middle of that spectrum. So then, what is a collaborative game? Basically, in a collaborative game, all the participants work together as a team. They share the payoffs and the outcomes. If the team wins or loses, everyone wins or loses. There's no no gray area, you know. So you can die in a collaborative game and the team still win. And thus, you're a winner because you maybe sacrificed uh-huh. yourself on the sword of whoever. Whereas in a, I guess in a cooperative game, the idea is that you need to be in the game. I don't know. What do you what do you think about this distinction? Does it this distinction make sense in the first place? It almost sounds like um in a cooperative game, everybody's kind of doing their own thing, but they're working toward a common goal in a sense, kind of like Flashpoint, where I'm a fireman running around on this side of the house and you're a fireman running around on the other side of the house, and together we're kind of doing our own thing toward the same goal, whereas in a game like um, Legendary Encounters, the alien deck building game, yeah. you're working together, but you can also play cards that actually specifically benefit other players that could have benefited you on your turn. Yes. Or like um, XCOM. Okay. very similar to this too, where everybody's actions affect someone else's turn. Right. So I, I have specific specific cards that I can purchase with my own um, with my own income, whatever that may be in the game, and my card that I just purchased is going to benefit you on your turn. So I might be spending my turn doing something that's going to benefit you, and we're all working completely co- collaboratively. Right, and that's that's what this article points out. The basically the article uses Lord of the Rings, the cooperative game, mm-hmm. as a template for what do we need to do in video games to make them more collaborative games. And Reiner Knizia, who made the Lord of the Rings board game, and this thing won the the Shield the Spiel des Jahres back in 2002, I think. I don't know if you've played this one. I have it. You haven't played it. I have it. You have it. I good, own good, good. it. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted to read this this article from, from this piece from Reiner Knizia because I thought it was a great quote. He's talking about his game basically. He says, "People say you can't play with each other. You have to play against each other. Otherwise, there's nothing to do." Of course, that's not true. I actually believe that playing with each other and really facing a common opponent in the game makes a much richer play playing experience. My challenge was to create an atmosphere in the game that pushed people together and made them naturally want to stay together. The players realize after the first few turns that they get hit so quickly with so many bad things that if they want to just go off by themselves, they have no hope. And that's what you were talking about just now. Yes. This idea right. that the whole, the whole of the party hangs on the balance of the one. Right. Basically, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few in this in this case, really. Yes, precisely. Um, the article that I was reading um, was from a website called playplaylearn.com. Um, and they were talking about cooperative games specifically in the classroom and how, it, how they were used um, not only to teach children how to actually cooperate, but also how to gauge where their students were mentally and develop in, in a mental developmental way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what she found was that there are, t- there are two 
ways of thinking about cooperation in our society. One of those is whenever a police officer or a manager, you know, your manager, what have you, says, we're going to cooperate on this thing, they will give you a dictate. They will give you instructions. Yes. And you, as a team, will cooperate with their dictates. Yeah, it's a subservient role, basically. Right. You know, it's a, the, without putting too fine a point on it, he's the alpha gamer. Right. And then there's the, the idea of true cooperation where everyone is equal and they have equal say in what happens and you're literally cooperating or collaborating to reach an end goal. And that's where we get into the alpha gamer syndrome. Yes. And what you'll see, she said, what you'll see, especially in elementary school kids is that um, they do not understand the concept of cooperation because their brain is so geared toward what they see out of their eyes and what's going on in their own heads that they can't understand the idea of full, true collaboration. Although they'll do it spontaneously every so often. If you put them in a game, um, she uses a game called um, Orchard, which is a Haba game from okay. like 1988. I think um, okay. Haba is a German board game company that specializes in making game educational games for children um, and not just educational games, but games that children can enjoy that yes. teach them the concepts of gaming. And this lady, um, uh, Patricia Harris, PhD said that she had witnessed children playing this game where you have four trees with four different types of fruit. On your turn, you roll a die. It's very simple. It's very simple. It's very similar to Hi-Ho Cherry, but there are... I was thinking Hi-Ho Cherry. Yeah, but there are decisions to be made. You okay. roll a die, and it'll tell you apples, and you'll take two apples off the tree. The other person will roll and get a different fruit, and you'll take those two fruits off, those two pieces of fruit off the tree. Where the cooperative section comes in is if you roll the die and it comes up with a basket, you can take any two pieces of fruit that you want. Okay. So... If a kid on the on a future turn, if the apple tree is empty and they roll apples, they've wasted their turn. They get nothing. At the but you're trying to race against the game because eventually the crow is going to come out and eat fruit and steal it from you. So okay. you want to get through the game as quickly and as efficiently as possible, which means on every person's turn they should be able to take something. What she found is a lot of the time kids will pick their favorite fruit and that is their fruit tree. And if mm. they roll the basket, they're going to they're going to want to get apples because they love apples. And teaching them that, well, the cool, shiny, super hot thing to do is not always the smart thing to do for the team. Well, they don't think about the team. They just think, I want to get all this stuff. I was using um, Forbidden Island in a classroom once. Okay. And I saw that the kids lost the game hard. They lost it bad <laughs> um, because they were so geared on, I want to get that idol i want to get i want to get the sphinx idol i want that one i had the same problem in a therapy session yeah and they're across the board from it i'm like well you know it would be more efficient if you went to this person gave them the stuff because they're the pilot and they can get there next turn and get it or you can spend four turns trying to get there yourself and the island will sink and you'll all die right and they sacrifice the potential of of the team winning for their own for their own goal. personal goals yes and they couldn't understand why they lost because I wasn't going to tell them what they should do because I didn't want to be that I will give you dictates and you do what right. I you say. want the game to teach the lesson and not you as the, right. the as the like the facilitator. The same thing happened in my therapy session. I was working with a little boy and a little girl and the goal 
They fight all the time. The goal was to get them not fight. Well, this little boy could not get it out of his head that he wanted all the stuff. And she wasn't supposed to get the stuff. And so anytime she was going to make a move towards it, he would do something to try to usurp her. He would try to get, you know, get things before she would, which meant that the game was totally going to fail and the island sunk. So this is the question that I'm getting as we start talking about this is when, and I don't have the answer, so I feel like I'm asking a question that I should be able to answer because I'm a psychology student, but when do we start getting the idea that we can collaborate with somebody else for the purposes of the benefit of ourselves, you know, this altruistic nature that, that comes up somewhere along the way where it's finally, it's suddenly not, I mean mine anymore. Now I only benefit if you get yours as well. I don't know where that happens. It's got to be a developmental stage. I feel like I need to go back and read through all my developmental psychology books at this point. Well, we're taught in society these days, especially, you know, America is founded on this. The idea that competition is key. Right. We have to com- companies have to compete in order to push themselves to become better. But there's there's a tipping point. And you'll see it in companies now where someone makes a great stride forward with a certain technology, but it gets destroyed because someone else was more business savvy and was able to shoot it down. Um, I remember whenever Betamax tapes came out, it was actually a decent technology. There was nothing yeah. wrong with it. It was smaller. It was more compact. But the maker, the makers of VHS had more financial clout and they were able to destroy a perfectly good thing because no one wanted to buy it because everything was coming out on VHS. My yeah. dad bought two two Betamax tapes because he said, that's the wave of the future. I'm like, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I had friends who bought laser discs and said that was the wave of the future. So we're, we're always going through this. And then DVDs came out. And then DVDs came out. <laughs> and then... All right, so we're off topic here for a minute. But and then Blu-ray comes out and and um I remember my boss asking me, "Do you think this Blu-ray thing's going to last long?" And I said, "No, no, because we've already invested so much money in DVDs. Why would people go out and buy a Blu-ray player because at that time it was 35-40 for a Blu-ray DVD." Yeah, we know where that went. Yeah, naturally that's starting to go away because now everything's going to digital. Yes. I've seen digital I've seen Blu-ray play, players plummet in price while everyone else is going to Roku boxes. So moving back to the game world, um, there are three lessons that this guy learned in his article. And I think they're important to share because they actually address these particular issues that we're talking about. This, this, uh, the alpha gamer they address and they address the fact that, uh, you know, sometimes we come to a game with the idea that we are going to be the ones who actually get the stuff kind of thing. So, The first lesson that he learned from this study that he did was to highlight problems of competitiveness, a collaborative game should introduce a tension between the perceived individual utility and team utility. And he points out that in the Lord of the Rings game, because this is again his example, um, Sauron achieves his best result when a hobbit is corrupted to behave in a selfish and competitive manner. So the game is geared, and I, I think Knizia did this on purpose, the game is geared so that if you take selfish actions you are going to slowly watch the fellowship die because you're taking the selfish actions because you know it's set you draw the tile out of the bag the tile may see either you move your hobbit forward one or you move sauron forward two well now you've got a dilemma because moving him forward two brings him closer to the party but you're not the ring bearer so you may want to make the step forward to save the party 
and ultimately the game rewards that decision and the game punishes the decision of having you take the easy road whatever the easy road might be that's fantastic i'm i'm so happy that kanitia looked at it that way well i i appreciate how a lot of games these days and i don't have a specific um, example of this but i know i've played one or two recently um i know for instance that um sentinels of the multiverse does this yeah where you have a cooperative game but everyone has hidden information and it kind of gets gets around the alpha player syndrome because the alpha player doesn't know what's in your hand. That's the next rule. And so you have hidden information in your hand and you can volunteer to say, I can help you with this on your turn. That takes the impetus away from whoever wants to be the general of the game, the alpha player, mm-hmm. and puts the, puts the power back into the indivi- each individual player's hands where they can volunteer to give you that information if they want to. And I think this is what Kanizia realized. He realized that if you keep secret information... No one can be the alpha player because they never have all the information they need. They have to cooperate with one another in order to make it work. Mm-hmm. So the next rule, the next lesson uh, that is in this article, to further highlight problems and competitiveness, competitiveness, individual players should be allowed to make decisions and take actions without the consent of the team. So there has to be this level of, I don't know, personal... I want to say personal engagement, personal agency. Yes. There has to be a level of personal agency in order to make sure that there's still, it's not, it's not this, the alpha gamer doesn't fit into this scenario if the game is created right. You know, we, we've seen the alpha gamers show up in games like, oh. Pandemic is the worst. I think, Pandemic is that, one, yeah. yeah. But even to an extent, I think Forbidden Island, Forbidden, Forbidden Desert, Island, I have the alpha yeah. gamer syndrome mm-hmm. kind of going on. Well, you have complete, almost completely open information, except maybe one or two cards that are in your hand. And that seems to be the damage that's done when you have completely open information is as a result of having completely open information, everybody can make a decision. And the person with the loudest voice, the person with the most, uh, what would you call it? The the, the most... Um, Charisma maybe in the yeah, game. The, yeah. Or the or person the, with the most ability to manipulate other people into doing their right. will. Those guys show up and then the game is just no fun for anybody. So I think Kanitia, at least in the Lord of the Rings, did away with that pretty well by by having this secret identity kind of thing. And, and player powers kind of do this as well. So it, it's kind of a player power situation. The third lesson that, that's pointed out here is players must be able to trace payoffs back to their decision. Mm-hmm. So you can't make a set of decisions and then go, I don't really know what brought me to this this terrible conclusion that I'm in. You have to be able to look back and reflect on it and say, oh... If I had just given the ring to Frodo, I would have been in much better shape. Or if I had just taken the ring for Frodo, you know, whatever it might be. It's a way of bringing that experience to the point of, I get to learn something from the process of the game, you know. The cooperation rates increase significantly as the benefits to others from, from one's cooperation increase. That's beautiful. One more lesson before I, I move on. To encourage team members to make selfless decisions, a collaborative game should bestow different abilities or responsibilities upon the players. That's the player powers I was talking about. Yeah. So that's all taken care of in that game. Can you think of other games where it's all taken care of like that, where it's where open and where closed information keeps the game? Um, other other kinds of games are kind of what you call semi cooperatives, where um, where there's maybe a hidden trader. Mm-hmm. Hidden the hidden trader variable where 
you're not really sure what everyone else is doing. Another game is um, you've played um, Dead of Winter. Yes, yes. Yeah. The one where everybody's working together toward one common goal, but each player has their own individual goal that they're trying to go toward. So they're... That might be the difference in cooperative and collaborative right there. Right. Because individualized goals are sort of reinforced in those kind of games. So, I mean, Shadows of Camelot, Battlestar Galactica, those things where, where right. there's hidden information that somebody could be the bad guy. Yeah, they, they. I think that's one of the things they tried to do to try to get around the alpha player syndrome was introduce the whole traitor aspect. Mm-hmm. But then the alpha player still says, well, if you don't do this, you must be the traitor. And so they had to go more toward maybe like um, Legendary, the Marvel deck, deck building game where everybody's working together to defeat the mastermind. Yeah. But they have, but there's only really going to be one winner. The person right. who has the most victory points. Right. Um, that which, may also be cooperative. You have to work together, but you that, really want it to work out for you. But that has unfortunately put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. The idea that, that um, yeah, it's a cooperative game, but it's really a competitive game. And it's, we can't it's deal with core. gray areas, it seems right. like. Um, another semi-co-op game is uh, Cutthroat Caverns. Haven't played that one. That one is... That one's virtually it's it's a it's a competitive game. Let's be honest. Okay, um, you're all working toward defeating a dungeon, and there are there are nine I think nine creatures that you're going to face. If you're playing a four player game, the creatures are all at four player power, four player ability. Okay, so you the only people who are going to get points from from each creature though are the is the player who dealt the killing blow to each creature. So everybody's working together to try to kill this creature. And then it gets right to the end and someone tries to kill it and you play a trip card. Nope. Oh, sorry. It's it's very passive aggressive. Oh, so sorry. I didn't mean to trip you. That was a complete accident. Sorry. And then you get to deliver the killing blow. Except someone else accidentally pokes you with a stick and, you know, bad things happen. And then finally one person gets to kill the creature and we move on. But you don't want to have your other party members die because if now there are only three players because someone's been eliminated, the creatures are all still powerful enough that they're fa- they should be faced by four players. So you want to keep everybody in the game technically, but you, you you're the only one who's who you you want to be the one with the most victory points, the most kills. Right, so, and and yeah. the gentleman who wrote this article also pointed out that. In video games, this happens a lot because you have the you have a situation where, like, you know, maybe a few small, uh, low-level characters are, are working on one big bad, and then a high-level character comes in, deals the killing blow, and takes the experience points, and the low-level characters are sitting there like, wait, what about us? <laughs> Once again, the, the guy's name is Jose, Jose Zagel and uh, Joaquin Rick. From Georgia Tech, I, I just want to make sure that they're given um, credit where credit is due because I'm I'm reading their paper and extrapolating upon it. Yeah, every every search I've ever done for cooperative games that avoid the alpha player problem, this game has come up, and I've got to say it, even though some of my friends like Leon and some of the others are going to laugh and laugh and mock me the next time they see me, Hanabi. I so thoroughly dislike that game but i've got to give it props it does avoid the alpha player problem because oh most definitely yeah yeah, because the information is so fully hidden from you 
that you have to collaborate with everyone else to win the game. That's not why I dislike it, but it's just not my kind of game. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a collaborative game in which you are working with each other and you're trying to develop. I think really when I think about Hanabi, and I don't want to get too deep into this because I know we could do an entire show on Hanabi, but I think really when it comes to Hanabi, it is about learning a group language. Yes. Um, there is a lot of logic involved, but as you develop your playing with this group, I think that logic starts to take a back seat to this is the way that we determine and create a scenario in which this particular situation will play out like we'll get the one, two, three, you know, in one fell swoop because we've got a particular way of, of organizing ourselves. I've seen this in talking to some of these guys who, who play Hanabi like over and over and over again. And it's clear to me that they have a different sort of take on what Hanabi is than I do. But that is something I would like to get to much later. Let's talk a little bit about what is it like to play a cooperative game just from the standpoint of being a person, getting away from all these game terms and things like that. What is it like for you when you play a cooperative game? Well, for me, you know, I, I, I will tell you up front my instinctive reaction, I think just about everyone has this to a certain extent, is to be the alpha player. You, okay. see, you see a clear path to success and you see an optimal move and you really want to tell the other players, this is what you should do this turn. And I have enough sense of self and sense of you know, how the game should be played that I sit back and let people make, make their own decisions, take their own turns and wait. If someone says, I can't see what to do here. What, what do you guys think I should do? I'll say, well, you could do this and I'll offer two or three options if I can, if I can see two or three options, but I, I, I try my best to be as stand back and collaborative and let other people make their own decisions as possible. Give them some agency. And the hardest thing is my wife doesn't have that fourth, that forthright personality sometimes and the people with the more overbearing personality will come in and practically take her pieces and move them for her. I've had that happen once or twice. And this is, this is something that happens in group therapy, which is called group think in which what's happened is basically the group has given away their power to what they concede to be the group mentality. Like, you know, it's a little bit mob mentality, but it's a little more organized in the sense that we've, you know, we've hemmed and hawed with whether or not we're going to take on the role of the leader of the group. And now we've decided either we're going to take that back seat or we're going to go ahead and take that front seat and be the leader. And then it starts to be a battle of alphas until we get to the point of someone saying, okay, fine, I give up on my position and let an alpha run run with it. It may not even be the best solution to the situation. It may not be the best result of a brainstorming group. But what happens is everybody gets bogged down and stops being able to make decisions for themselves. They basically throw their power to somebody else because there's this kind of consensus already going on and they feel like their view is outside the consensus and therefore they're going to drift towards the consensus. That's why the alpha player gets reinforced because those people who are unsure of themselves, those people who are unable to make the stand for what they want are more likely to gravitate towards a position of subservience to the one who's grabbing that confidence. Now, if you've got a whole bunch of alphas in one, then you have kind of an argument situation. Yes, that has happened a few times. Typically, I try whenever I'm playing a game and I see someone rising up and immediately just not even bothering to 
try to to pull back on that. I'll I'll say let them make their own decision. Yeah, so you almost have to alpha and at the same time Socrates. Yeah, you have to alpha Socrates. I have to de-alpha the alphas with my alpha. Like, wait, what? Yeah, that's okay. That's a little meta. So my experience of it, I think, is a little bit different. I think I do get caught in that situation where I'm like, I'm more likely to maybe steer somebody in a direction. But then I catch myself and I fall back almost completely on myself and I say, well, you know, that's just that's just one thought. And you could do what you want to do. I, I, I kind of do what you want to what you do in the sense that I want to see what other people want to do. And if we're going to make this game a way to learn about working with one another, I do have to take a little step back from my own position. I, I think games like Lord of the Rings, and there's probably a few others that I just can't identify right now, manage to help us by keeping some of that information secret, which means that we're not all openly talking about what's what's really going on underneath. We're just talking about what we need as a group kind of thing. Um, you know, in a sense, in, in Battlestar Galactica, even though we know that one player... One player might be the the traitor kind of thing. We're all working towards a common goal, and we're all having that conversation, but nobody knows what we have in our hands. So that's that little bit of uncertainty. I think when I first started playing cooperative games, my experience was that I wasn't sure how to have faith in my decisions versus the decisions of those that were more alpha in the game. So... I think basically, I don't know, I, I gave away my power like I was talking about a little bit because I, you know, if you're new to the game, the difference is practice of the game versus coming up to the game new. You come up to the game new, you're more likely to take an alpha position, an alpha person and say, ah, I'm going to follow you. You look like a strong leader versus we've all been playing the game for a while like going back to those guys who play Hanabi a lot, we've all been playing the game for a while. Now we can work on a strategy within the group kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think another another game that kind of gets away from the the alpha player syndrome is Pandemic the Cure. Because everybody's, ro- everybody's rolling their dice and you roll your dice on your turn and you can put them toward whatever you want to. And see, that's your unknown information. Right. The another, dice roll is no one knows until it happens. Right. And another piece of unknown information. But not only that, but you can also, again, directly collaborate by giving your dice to another player so that they can be saving up for um, to get to get the cure to a specific disease. So you can you can say, OK, who's looking for these dice? OK, you take this one. Like, oh, thank you. You know, no, mm-hmm. one's, no, no one's reaching across the table for your dice because they can't really see because the dice are so small, they can't really see what your dice are necessarily. So it, it makes it that much harder for them to to reach over the table and go, oh yeah, give me these three and take the dice from you. They have to sit and wait for you to make your decision of what you're going to do. And of course, you can always re-roll and take the dice back and go, no, I don't like this re-roll. I'm remembering, I played Ghost Stories at a recent game convention that I was at. And that one seemed to have no problem with an alpha gamer. And I can't really identify why that was. Maybe because none of us actually knew how to play it. And there was one guy outside the group that was teaching us. But, I mean, that may be ideal. You may need a facilitator who is outside the group to sort of keep that group think from happening. Because the group think, speaking of group therapy techniques, when it comes to group think, that is the killer of group collaboration. 
that destroys our opportunity to work together and make a difference with one another. That puts us in a seat of, okay, you lead, I'll follow. I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. My opinion doesn't matter. Well, I've I've seen that in um, whenever I used to work in the in the corporate field, I used to um, I used to have a real problem with the fact that we we're supposed to be working together on a project, but each person is competing for their own best interests. Right. And we couldn't collaborate on this thing because we were all trying to one up each other in some way, shape or form. And the pieces of the project that needed to go forward couldn't go forward. Um, I had, I was working on a database at one company um, building a piece of help desk software and it had to reside because until we could buy a separate license on the test server for, for the database administrator. Um, he did not appreciate the fact that someone else was building a database on his precious little server. Um, basically, a second a, a second DBA was horning in on his territory, and he quote unquote forgot and wiped my database after I'd gotten all the work done on it and was getting ready to present it. It just disappeared off the face of the planet. And whenever I went, and he just grinned at me, and said, "Oh, sorry, you had that on my test database, right?" Well, that's okay. I'm just, I'm going to rebuild the software anyway. I'm going I'm to take over your project anyway. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to horn in on your territory. Right. Um, and it's that, that whole idea of, but all the he work was done. Role. The work was done. There was nothing for you to do. And I wasn't a threat to you because I'm not really a DBA. I'm, I'm, I'm a help desk guy who happens to know how to do database. Okay. <laughs> so... Yeah, there's a reason I'm a teacher now. Yeah, not only because I really, I'm really thoroughly love the the whole, everything about the job. I haven't found anything so far that I really dislike so much as the everything I disliked about the corporate world. Because in in the in the educational setting, every one of us as teachers, we're not competing for each other's jobs. We have our own classroom and our own little. Um, biodome of of um of education in our own classroom we're doing our own thing but whenever i first walked into the classroom every one of the teachers asked me for my thumb drive and they put all their lesson plans and all their supplies right. that they'd use so they give you the tools you drive. need they gave me all the tools that i needed and then I, send you out into the world kind of okay go use these tools and, and they said you don't have to do anything that i've done the teacher who um who i took over for said, you don't have to do anything in my lesson plans. They're just a guideline for you. I would like for you to teach the the things that we had set out to do because there's a you know, we had these things set up so that we would all have the books at the right times. So you know you kind of you teach the subject matter that I wanted to teach in the time I wanted you to teach it. But how you do it, entirely up to you. And I like that kind of collaborative That is collaborative right there because right. It, your your strengths are still your strengths. But here's the tools we use and you can, you know, bring your strengths to those tools. And whenever I go to ask one of my other teachers, one of my fellow teachers, well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on what to do with the students with this. They say, oh, well, let me sit you down and they'll take me through the next two weeks of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, does any of that sound good to you? I said, well, this sounds more like me, but I, I don't think I could really do that. They said, well, you could always do something else with, with that, that particular lesson. But yeah, well, if you, if you, if that sounds good to you, let me give you all my, 
documentation for that. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. I get everything for it. And it's just the most amazing environment to work in sometimes. So you've you've brought this to the classroom a little bit. And now you're talking about your work in the classroom. But can you talk about how you talked about Forbidden Island? And I think that's great. Is there any other situation in which you used a cooperative game in the classroom or used cooperative dynamics? You know, you talked about gamification at the first uh, right. the first part and how we we're going to gamify the classroom. Is there any part of cooperative gaming that you fit into that that substructure, that way of seeing things? Yes. Um, there's a new tool. I'm trying to remember the name of it off the top of my head. I've I have it at, at the school, but not right here on me. I think it's called Classcraft. Okay. It's kind of um, like Classroom Dojo, if you've heard of that one. I haven't. Um, yeah, it's called Classcraft. It's classcraft.com. Okay. Each student is going to take the role of a wizard, a fighter, or a cleric. Okay. So you've got three classes. You've got three classes. Um, all they do is you give them experience points for doing well in class for answering a question correctly for volunteering something for helping for being respectful for raising their hand when they were supposed to and if they do poorly if they do things that would typically get them you know one step closer to a detention you hit them with hit point damage okay if they get enough experience points they level up as they level up, they get an increase in their powers. They can purchase powers. One of those powers could give them the ability to do something in classroom. They in the classroom they normally wouldn't be able to do. Um, so, is this cooperative? Is this where they're all? Is it like a party that's working on a particular goal together? In a sense, they're all working on passing this class. But how they okay. do that is kind of interesting. The cleric, for instance, can heal other students' hit points. Or their own. Okay. Um, and the, the wizard can boost other players. The, the the warrior can protect other players from hit point damage. If someone else was, were going to get hit point damage for talking, a student could go, I'm going to engage this spell. And they're not going to take the hit points for it. And the students are working together to protect themselves to help each other out. But here's the here's another thing, though. As you get more experience points, you can do something as simple as you can come up to the teacher and ask for a, you, you can use your power. It's a lot of, it's a lot of power points. It's a right. lot of points to do it. Right. So you only get it so many times per semester, but if you've acquired this power and you have enough points, enough, you know, enough points in this, in, in your, um, in your character, you can come up and ask the teacher for a hint on one test question or you can get a pass to the library for 15 minutes to check out a book. Okay, I love this, but I have to ask this question because it's a good real-world question mm-hmm. that someone who is not a, a full-born geek like you and I will come to you and ask, how does that apply to real-world circumstances? Does that set up things for an, uh, an unrealistic expectation that I can figure out ways to finagle the system? Well, you can figure out ways to finagle the system. It it is true in every day in everyday life. It's just this is less subtle than than, than reality. But it's it's kind of going back to um, what Jane McGonigal says in um, in reality, reality is, is broken. broken. Yeah, yeah. She's talking about how we we kind of need to gamify things because 
I, I, I used to play World of Warcraft. Um, got to be a little too time consuming for me for a while there. So I had to drop out of it. But while I was playing it, it was, it's a serious high to be able to emotional high mm-hmm. to be able to level your character up. You have achieved something this week. I achieved something. I reached level 70. I got this power. I beat this mission. I beat this mission. That's been stymieing some of my friends. I beat it. So I'm really excited so- about what you're saying. And Okay, I hear you. Yes, we can finagle the system. We already can. So we're just making it a little more obvious by by putting it into the classroom curriculum. And the other piece I heard was the collaborative piece, which is, yes, the students can work together for the common goal of helping one another pass a class. How do you generate the want for player A to want player B to do well in the class? Well, um, let's put it to you this way. If... If player A does something that loses him hit points and he tries to get the other other kids in the class to help him not take that hit point damage, but he's annoyed everyone else in the class by doing what he's doing, it's going to reinforce that idea. Now it's not just the teacher saying, you need to stop doing that because you're annoying me. A lot of these kids couldn't care less what I think. Now the whole class is saying it. Now their peers are saying, I'm not healing you. You're being a jerk. And I really, I'm, I'm trying to learn something here and you're being a jerk. And I'm not going to heal you now. So no, without mean- actually saying that, you're just going to say, no, no, you, you earned that. And now it's not just me saying he earned it. It's everyone else saying he earned it. If the students do help him, then it's some of the other students helping you out by spending their own points, their points that they could be using to boost their own characters. And so a student who may not need the boost on a test may not need that hint on the test is giving that benefit to someone who actually might could use it. So I, I haven't actually used it in the classroom yet. I just discovered it last week. So and is I'm there, is there research done on it? Is there any natural, like, is there a natural altruistic uh, sort of thing that crops up in the classroom as a result of having this structure put on top of it that children will basically, we're, we're talking about a little bit of Lord of the flies with a dictating system over the top of it that keeps things from going awry. I'm not sure. I haven't seen, like I said, I just discovered it last week and I've just been reading up on it, but the concept of students being able to collaboratively assist each other in the game Mm -hmm. and thus either reinforcing positive behavior, hopefully I can see the danger of reinforcing negative behavior possibly. I actually know that's the thing I was looking at. Does yeah. it reinforce some negative behavior? Well, if negative- does it does it reinforce maybe a, a like a click to say, okay, we're all going to take care of ourselves, but not anybody else. Well, that could happen. But if that happens, you're going to fail because you've spent your hard-earned points to help someone who did something negative. Okay. Eventually, there's going to be a backlash on that of, can I get a hint on the test? Well, no, you spent all your points the last three times so-and-so talked in class, remember? You healed them. That's the Kinesia thing. So yes. if it works, if it matches, then basically in the classroom, the the less selfish you are, the more likely you succeed. Right. Okay. So I'm 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 thinking about um, maybe next semester once I've done some research on this and checked mm-hmm. it out and played around with the tools a little bit, um, checking with my administration and having a test class, one class that I do this with not all 
you know, all okay. five of my classes. So I you mean, can watch one, the difference in right. the structure. I've got a pretty good barometer on my students, and there's one class I think who would be an excellent test bed for this. Okay. So I'm I'm really looking forward to getting it getting it tried out sometime soon. I have to get buy-in of my administration, which he's usually a pretty good buy-in for practically okay. any, you know, and anything that sounds interesting and engaging, he'll he'll usually give it a good try. So bringing it into the therapy world, because I'm not in the classroom, bringing mm-hmm. it into the therapy world, the collaborative games, what I think they do best if they're really done well. And, and the nice thing, you know, about being the therapist is I, I need to sit outside of it. Even if I'm playing along with a child, I still need to take kind of a, a secondary position where I'm, I'm in support of the process of the game. I'm certainly not alpha gaming because my goal my goal is for them to learn the lessons that the game offers. Sometimes I may be making decisions that are not necessarily good for the the total situation because I'm trying to get them to recognize when someone else makes a mistake, what do you do about that situation? But the best thing I've seen for it is it increases communication between people who are not necessarily going to communicate properly. And an example is a family that I worked with that already don't do really good communicating their their needs together, and we used Forbidden Island. That's been a go-to game for me for a little while. We used Forbidden Island to create this kind of collaborative process, and there were times at which, and this is an adolescent, so this is someone who's got a little more developed idea of what it means to be working towards a group goal. Yeah. Um, But... It's, it still came that his ideas were more important than other people's ideas. He was still working for the goal of the, the good of the group, but he felt like he knew better than everyone else, as adolescents are wont to do anyway. But as a result, it created this kind of situation where the parent kind of stopped him from doing this. And I just kind of sat back and watched, well, what, what is going to happen here? That they failed the objectives to in order to keep the island alive. But then when I got to talking to them about it, you know, the parent person basically said that he didn't want to see the child fail. And that was kind of a breakthrough because the child didn't realize that that was what was really going on. Instead, his, his vision was, I'm going to keep you from failing by playing this alpha gamer role. And, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to one up you because I'm the adult here, you know. But the thing I pointed out to him, and the thing I think that games like this do is that as a result of taking that decision from your child, you basically made your child dependent upon you to make decisions for you. Their decisions don't matter. Your decisions do matter. And you're basically showing him that his his thought processes, his, his logic, none of that can be tested because I don't trust you to test those those logical statements. This, for this family, was really important because it was his sudden realization that I don't need to, you know, especially in the course of a game, I don't need to tell him what to do because the game is going to teach him that this is not the correct way to handle things. So Forbidden Island can do amazing things in family therapy, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, in, in, in any given situation like that, whenever my children were young, um, if I saw them about to take a a um a move that was suboptimal mm-hmm. i would point out to them okay you can do that but here are the consequences of what are going to happen is that still what you want to do and if they still wanted to do that i would let them do that and the game would teach them mm-hmm. along the way but i gave them forewarning yeah you almost and, need this stop point in the game where you stop and say 
okay, I want you to think about this right now. What are the positive outcomes of what you're about to do? And what are the negative outcomes of what you're about to do? And are the positive outcomes worth the negative outcomes? Because there's always going to be both sides to this situation. You are at this crossroads. You are making a decision that's going to balance this one way or the other. How do you feel about this? Right. That stop. And that's, that's the trick, I think, in therapy is not seeing the game as an as a means to an end, but seeing it as the process of the game is the teaching tool for developing some cognitive, um, I want to say something opposite of dissonance. So I'm going to make a mistake and say cognitive resonance. <laughs> I'm not sure if this word exists. I'm only one therapist guys. I am not, <laughs> but I think it's assonance. Oh, okay. Dissonance. That, that makes sense too. Um, so the, the idea being that if we can get to that point where you realize what your decisions do, that's the teaching moment in the therapy session, at least, you know, this is what's going to happen. So, and then if you make the decision and you're like banking on, you know, you're banking on your decisions to be good and they come out bad. At least you have the trail back to say, Oh, I could have made a different decision. And as a therapist, I can even go, okay, you could have made a different decision. Let's pull it back one move. What would that different decision be now? So now you're seeing a different path of choice. And that's really, especially in therapy, what we're trying to do is get people to see you can go a completely different direction. Well, you've played enough games with me to know that this is true. The, the the beauty of the way I've taught my kids games is, and this is the 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 core problem I see with other people playing these kind of games is I don't care if I win or lose. My whole goal is just to play the game and have fun. And right. if I can get closer to achieving the goal of winning the game, so much the better. But I'm not going to beat someone else over the head to make them make the quote unquote right decision just so we can win. I just want to play the game. And you know, as well as anyone who's ever played a game with me, I, I really don't play to win. <laughs> what was the line I heard last night? I like playing this game with Woody because I don't mind losing. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, that was, uh, that was a friend that we were playing with in no, the Mysterium no, no, game. The, it was the Mysterium game. That's right. Yeah. Because you know, Woody was having trouble with, uh, with, um, with colors and she said, you know, I, I, she said that and everyone had a good laugh, but um, I was like, I'm just glad she didn't say that about me because. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get to the point of, of wrapping up things, just one more question in regards to this. Have you found that when you're playing these cooperative games that you will um, purposely make less of a move in order to give the benefit to someone else to have the experience of making a decision about the game. Yes. If I, if I see someone going towards something that I think I could technically do a little bit more efficiently, but they had their heart set on doing that thing. I'll sometimes step back and just let them do their thing and do my, do, do something a little bit different. Um, I, I, try to get out of people's way and let them just play the game mm -hmm. because I'm mostly there um, to do what, what my wife calls playing the social game. I'm right. just there to socialize with my friends and have a good time. And if saying, no, don't do that. I'm going to do that. 
well, how much power do I really need in my life? Um, that's, that's kind of my, my go-to thought in any game is how much power do I really need in my life? I don't really need enough power that I tell someone, no, this is what I want to do. Well, you know, do right. what you want to do. And with any luck, those are lessons we learned when we were in kindergarten. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now I, I learned them much later. I was very, I was very clueless in elementary school. <laughs> That's your next t-shirt. Yeah. Clueless in elementary school. My wife would say clueless now, but I have a clue. I've seen it on your shelf. Yeah. So <laughs> bringing it in for a landing here, we're just going to give final statements about cooperative collaborative games. And do you, do you feel like you got everything that you wanted to say out? Yeah. I mean, the main thing I wanted to get out was this, was um, the, the ideas in this article about the difference between collaboration versus compliance is, mm-hmm. is the way they, the way they termed it. Okay. Um, whenever you're playing a cooperative game, you're either going to play it collaborate, a cooperative game. You're either going to play it collaboratively or you're going to play it compliantly. And, it's a better gaming experience for everyone if you try to play it more collaboratively than where you are compliant to someone else's right. Um, compliant is almost idea. the opposite of the alpha gamer. It's the the beta gamer. The beta the, gamer. Uh, yeah, yeah. The person who's taking a step back because okay, you just go ahead and do what you need to do. Yeah, I'll just stand here and benefit. Yeah, my wife is not like that. If if someone's trying to alpha game her, she'll take the worst move possible just to make them mad. And whenever yeah, they say, why did alpha? you do that? She says, well, if you would shut up and stop telling me what to do, I would make better moves. We need another letter for those per- those people who are before alpha. They go like, okay, you're the alpha gamer. I'm, I'm going to show you that I can be <laughs> alpha plus alpha, alpha minus one. That would be. We'll call them ginger gamers <laughs> in honor of my wife. No, no association with redheads, folks. No, no, sorry. No, not at all. <laughs> So, my feeling about collaborative games, especially in regards to the professional world, is that this these are tools for communication. So, you can use a collaborative game to create a, a greater communication among the players. And as a result, you can use that as your jumping off point to talk about what is your communication like. Because your communication in the game is in some way... And you're going to hear me say this throughout Rolling for Change. It's in some way reflective of their experience communicating with other things in their life. It's gaming, gaming's a microcosm. I'm going to probably drill that into people's heads. If I, if I do nothing else on Rolling for Change, I'll spend every week hammering <laughs> into your head. Gaming is a microcosm of your experience in the real world. So, um, that's... That's pretty much what we're going to say about collaborative games for now. And, and we're going to ask you guys, the listeners, if you've, if you've stuck with us this long, God bless you. Uh, we want to hear from you. What, what are your go-to collaborative games? What are the things that you think collaborative games do for us? Is there a difference in the competitive collaborative thing? Um, what are the best games that you guys have found that get around the alpha player problem? Or if you haven't found any specific games, what's your best ways of, what are your best ways of dealing with the alpha player problem? Yeah. Cause that's a real important question that, that I think all game groups have to ask. How do you deal with that situation? You have been listening to rolling for change. This has been episode two and was published on August 10th, 2016. 
If you'd like to contact us, offer feedback, or suggest topics, you can send your email to gamers at rollingforchange.com. Our Twitter handle is at RollForChange. Our theme music is by Rocket Scientists. Check them out at rocketscientists.bandcamp.com. Rolling for Change is a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. You can find more information at geektherapy.com. Once again, thanks so much for listening, and keep on rolling for change.